This is the Heart of the Arts podcast. I'm Greg Kustraba speaking with Warren Cohen. He's the music director of the Musica Nova Orchestra. They've got a concert coming up Monday evening, January 22nd at 7 at the MIM. A program of Schubert and Bruckner. It's called Finished Unfinished. Warren, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Great to be here. Now, for people that may be new to the Valley, because, you know, people are moving in all the time, can you give us a little brief little synopsis of the history of your orchestra? Right. Well, Musica Nova started in 2003, and um, the idea behind the orchestra was that we would do things that other orchestras wouldn't do. And so basically the importance of the orchestra has been that we do new music, we do neglected music, we do music that used to be popular that has been... um, that has been uh, neglected in recent years. And we also do music by famous composers in in it with a new twist. So there's also an educational element. If we do more familiar music, we will do it in a slightly different way, which of course is very much the case in this concert in the way we're doing the Schubert Unfinished Symphony. Yeah, and let's let's talk about that briefly because you're not just doing the two movements that Schubert finished, you're adding more. Right. We're doing um, the version uh, that was put together by uh, the scholar William Carrigan. And in it, what he did is he did that there's the two movements that we have complete. There is a third movement that Schubert almost completed, which is one of the things that people are kind of unaware of. They, When they hear that there were some scherzo sketches, they think there were only a few bars. There weren't. In fact, he almost completed the scherzo. And uh, for the finale, what we are doing is we're doing a piece that Schubert wrote just after he finished working on the Unfinished Symphony, or, and that was uh, the, uh, it's based upon a couple of entrects from the incidental music he wrote for the play Rosamunda, and it's based on the second entract and the first entract, uh, which there's many people who believe that these pieces were originally intended as the finale for the Unfinished Symphony. And there's lots of circumstantial evidence to believe that. One is that they're in the same key. Uh, well, the, the D major entract, the second entract, is, is in, a, in a slightly different but related key. They use exactly the same instrumentation. And the first entract is in a form that every one of Schubert's symphonies finales, the finale of every one of his symphonies follows exactly that form. So it fits very much. And there's a lot of reason to believe that he actually wrote this as the finale. And then what happened is somebody came along uh, saying, well, we need some music for a play. And he went, I can make a few bucks here. And he repurposed the music for Rosamunda um, because that was going to actually make him some money, whereas writing the symphony wasn't. If that was the case, and if that was his intention, why do you think he didn't go back and actually complete the symphony in its form? Is that because he knew it wouldn't get a performance? It's really tricky uh, to know about this, because here's here's what makes it really interesting. Um, He actually sent the score of the first two movements uh, to a fellow by the name of Joseph Huttenbrenner, who was a friend of his, actually, uh, Joseph's brother Anson was his, was his best friend, well, one of his best friends. And he sent it to him, 
And there was some idea that he was going to have this performed by a music society. And I think negotiations were kind of falling apart. So he sent it to uh, Joseph Hudenbrenner, and he held on to it for 40 years. And we don't know why he sent only the first two movements. Actually, he didn't quite only send the first two movements. He sent the first two movements, but on the last page of the second movement, on the back side of that page, he had the beginning of the scherzo, fully scored, okay, written on that. And then the rest of it wasn't there. Um, so the, the rest of the scherzo wasn't there, which he had written, as I said, quite a bit of. And uh, instead, he just sent those first movements with that. We don't know the reason why he sent that. But having sent it to him, at that point, it seems like he abandoned work on it. Um, we don't know whether he decided that there, there are many reasons why he might have decided it didn't quite work. One was the fact that the first two movements are in 3-4 time, and the scherzo has to be in 3-4 time. And he might have thought that three movements in 3-4 time, one after another, doesn't really work musically. Um, there's other possibilities, too. I mean, he could have just decided that because he used it for Rosamunda, which, by the way, turned out to be pretty successful for him, um, he decided that if he would repurpose it back into the symphony, that would seem weird. So he probably he may have felt like he was now constrained in his ability to use that music for another purpose. Right, because it was so it was so popular in the format that everyone knew it as the music from Rosamunda that it would seem right. like he was kind of cheating, as it were. Right, exactly. And so that's there, there's many possible reasons why he, he may not have finished it. And the other thing we have to keep in mind is that Schubert had a tendency not to finish pieces. He, right. Um, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, we talk about the unfinished symphony, but there are six other unfinished symphonies, you know, um, that, that were in various stages of completion. Some of them were pretty far along. Um, and only the, the last one, the 10th symphony, definitely was not finished because he died. But the other, the other the five of them, they, they were just, he abandoned them in various states of completion. So this was apparently something that he was prone to do. And it's interesting because those ones that he abandoned in various states of completion were written in a period after his first six symphonies, all of which were completed. He then went through a period where he was trying to develop a symphonic form that was bigger and more like Beethoven. And, and I think that a lot of those experiments he felt didn't quite work. And that's why he abandoned them. So most of those were written between 1817 and 1822. And the last of that group of unfinished symphonies was the one we call the unfinished. And then in 1824, he wrote what we now call the symphony number no. nine, the great C major symphony, which was the last symphony that he actually finished. He finished seven symphonies, but there are six unfinished ones. Uh, before we talk about the next piece on the program, let me ask about the, the numbering of this symphony, because yeah. I've seen a lot of things <clears throat> lately where people are calling it the symphony number no. seven because they couldn't, and I'm not sure why, I think the rationale that I've seen is that there were selections from a symphony number no. seven that have never been found, but what you're suggesting is that he wrote a number of symphonies that could have been number no. seven. Yeah, he did, actually. Um, the reason we call it number no. seven sometimes is there is a new Schubert edition 
that came out in the 1980s or 90s. And in that, they numbered it as number seven. And then they numbered the great C major as number eight. The reason that this is iffy is because of the fact that if you wanted to number number seven, there was a symphony that he wrote in 1820 that he didn't orchestrate that was largely completed, that has been orchestrated by other people. And it's a symphony in E major. And in the traditional uh, numbering system, that was usually called number seven. And uh, that one, because of the fact that there was some debate about whether it was a real symphony in the, uh, when the edition they came out in the 1980s, they decided, let's just forget about that one and let's call the unfinished number seven. It's taken off in some places, I mean, particularly in Europe, particularly in Germany, which is where the new edition was put together. But um, in most places, we still call it number, uh, we still call the unfinished number eight. And kind of, I prefer that numbering um, precisely because there is, in my mind, a real number seven. That absolutely makes perfect sense. And, and given your proclivity to writing famous composers' music, performing famous composers' music with a new twist, you might actually hear it on an upcoming concert. Absolutely. I, it's actually a good piece. I, I, I'd be very interested in doing it. I, I don't like the orchestrations that have been put together, but we, we can always fiddle with that. Right, right. Okay, so you've got the, the uh, longer version of the Unfinished Symphony, as you mm-hmm. talked about, and then Intermission, and then you have music by Anton Bruckner, who may have been the most, uh, aside from Tchaikovsky, and I think Bruckner actually takes it up a notch, uh, not very confident about his skills. You have a symphony in F major. Tell us a little bit about this one. And first of all, I guess where it fits in his symphonic output. Right. Well, the the F minor symphony was written in 1863, and it is the very first symphony that he wrote. And sometimes you will see it uh, identified as the study symphony because of the fact that he wrote it at the end of his studies with Otto Kitzler, who was a a famous pedagogue who he spent a couple of years studying orchestration and form with. Now, uh, Bruckner had a very interesting trajectory as a composer. He had um, previously, he he had worked as an organist and he had decided he wanted to compose. He spent a few years writing music and then decided that he didn't really have enough skill. So at the age of 31, he went to the uh, famous teacher, Simon Zechter, and spent the next um, seven, six years, actually, six years studying with Zechter, studying counterpoint with Zechter. And Zechter said, you're not allowed to write any music. So for six years, he wrote no music. Wow. At the end of his studies with Zechter, he went to Kitzler, spent another two years. And what we have is something uh, called the uh, Kitzler Studienbuch. And this is a book in which um, Bruckner wrote down everything that he worked on with, with, with Kitzler. So we have a complete record of all the pieces that he wrote for him. And initially he wrote some piano pieces and some chamber music. And then he wrote a couple few orchestral pieces. There's, there's a, a three overtures, some smaller orchestral pieces. And then basically as a kind of graduation exercise, he wrote the F minor symphony. Um, the conductor, Herbeck, was interested in performing it and because he had sent it to him. He said, yeah, this is pretty good. I want to do it. But then Herbeck got fired from his job, and then the new conductor wasn't interested. 
So um, at that point, um, Bruckner just put the music aside and um, decided he left it there. He didn't destroy it or anything, but he just decided he moved on and then started working on his next symphony, which is what we now call the symphony number one. So it predates any of his uh, numbered symphonies, and it also predates the other symphony that we sometimes call symphony number zero, which was actually his third symphony. It was written between number one and number two. And uh, so it's the very first one. As a matter of fact, there's, there's a, a record label decided one point to label it number zero zero, right. which is kind of silly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I know some some Bruckner people get get really, really worked up about that. They say it's terrible that it was named, numbered that. But, you know, I mean, it's publicity. So sure. The one thing that I would say is that it's a Bruckner symphony. It is the first symphony he wrote, but there is much more about it that is Brucknerian than what is conventional 19th century symphonic writing by other composers. Okay. And is that what attracted you to this piece, that it sounded more like Bruckner than some, someone else? What attracted me to this piece was the fact, was actually the, the um, interplay between what is Brucknerian about it and some aspects of it which are a little bit different and very interesting. I, what attracted me most was I think it's a really good piece and it's hardly ever done. Um, I think that um, the Berlin Philharmonic is going to do it this season, and it's the first time they've ever done it. Wow. And, of course, they've done more Bruckner than anybody. Sure. But Thielman's going to be conducting it in March, so we're beating him by a couple of months. But uh, they're actually, it's the first time they've ever done it. So it hasn't been done that much. I mean, they're, we were able to, I, I don't know, there may have been like two or three performances in the United States ever you know, of it. It's extremely unusual in terms of performance. And so that was the first thing. And then I went, hey, it's a great piece. We should do it, you know. And then I looked at it and I said, well, there's a lot about this. This is typical Bruckner. I mean, especially the formal elements. And that I found interesting because he'd been studying form with Kitzler. And yet what he does in this piece is he takes a formal structure that is Bruckner, the way he organizes the material. It's strictly Bruckner. It's not something that anybody had ever done before. And so it wasn't something that he was just learning in his lessons. He had already come up with a new way of structuring a symphony. And that's fascinating in itself. That, that is very unusual. Is that, is that perhaps one of the reasons why, um, why the, the Viennese critic Edward Hanslick was so antagonistic toward his music? Was it a formal thing? Was it a, um, a, the harmonic language? What do you think was the cause of that? Was it just politics? It was mostly politics. I mean, uh, Hanslick, was, Hanslick was basically trying to create controversy because it meant that more people read his reviews and he got more money from the newspaper. And the way he created controversy was trying to set up a war between Brahms and Wagner. And um, Bruckner was associated, in his mind, with Wagner because he admired Wagner's music. Now, I think the relationship between Bruckner and Wagner has been overstated greatly. Uh, I do not find that there's a huge amount of Wagner in Bruckner's musical language, except in the Third Symphony, where he quoted Wagner. Mm -hmm. But then he took those quotes out in the later versions of the Third Symphony, so even that is not that that great. His harmonic language is his own. It's very, it's very, it's actually not Wagnerian, but he loved Wagner and he loved Wagner's music, 
And so therefore Hans Lick put him into that group. And I don't think it was any deeper than that. Wow, you know, okay. uh, and, and the funny thing is Brahms and Wagner had no personal antagonism at all. You know, this was all purely manufactured by, by Hans Lick and his crowd. Fascinating. Okay, excellent. Any anything else you want to talk about about either of these symphonies that I can throw in? I think this is your your knowledge is encyclopedic, and it's really been a, a fun to talk with you. Yeah, a few things. Um, a couple of things about the F minor symphony. One is um, the the aspects of it that are different than a uh, typical Bruckner symphony, and one is right at the beginning. And it's the fact that Bruckner had an obsession with numbers and he, everything had to be in two and four bar phrases. But this particular symphony begins with a seven bar phrase. So it's irregular. And it's, it's fascinating to hear in the context of this very Brucknerian sounding music to hear this irregularity of a type that he would never permit in his later symphonies. The other thing that's different is the way he finishes it, the end, the very end. Um, later on, he always did a kind of build-up um, where what he would do is he would have a sustained part and then you'd have the music sort of blossoming over it with a big crescendo to the end. And in this, what he does is he does what is something like a more typical sort of thing that you would get from Schumann or Mendelssohn. If you want to know which composer it's most like, I would say it's more like Mendelssohn than any other composer, which is kind of interesting. And at the end, instead, what he does is he has this buildup with a lot of speed getting faster and creating this in intense energy. And it's brilliantly done, but he never did it again. So those, those are two aspects. The beginning and the end are probably the aspects that are the most different in this symphony. And that's kind of fun, you know. And um, if I say anything about the, the, the Schubert, What's interesting is the way in which um, Will Carrigan handled the last movement. Carrigan felt, and I think he had a, a very good point, which was that the, um, that the movement was too short in that form because this, the first entract is seven and a half minutes long. And the first movement's 12, the second movement's 12, and that the finale that's seven minutes with that seems a bit short. And the other, the other thing that he did is he extended the, uh, the first entract by uh, repeating the exposition and adding a few bars at the end so that it, the whole movement with the second entract at the beginning and the, uh, uh, the extensions that he did on the first entract, it turned out to be about the same length, 12, 13 minutes, as the other movements. Yeah, and that's important for structures of symphonies as well. It, right, it spends exactly. so much time on those. Those first two movements are so expansive. To have something yes. short at the end seems rather unfulfilling. Right, and that's why when he did this, that's why I use the Carrigan finale. I mean, there's other ones that have come out. But this one, I think, works because it is the right length. It makes, it makes the whole thing work. Now, in terms of what Carrigan actually composed of his own, there's actually nothing that he really composed. All he did is he repurposed some of the music that Schubert had written and used it for a first ending so that the exposition repeats and then repeated a few extra bars. So the ending, which, which is a little bit abrupt in the original, but it would be perfect if it was in the theater. It was the sort of thing where you're going, okay, let's have an abrupt ending and a new key. So the theater comes up and it's like, wow, it's the beginning of the show. But for a symphony, 
you want a more conclusive ending. So that's why he, he added a few bars there. I think it works brilliantly. And to tell you the truth, at this point, I'd rather hear and listen to the four-movement version of the two. And uh, that's, that's, I think, a compliment to Carrigan's work on it. Oh, indeed it is. And, and it shows, again, as you mentioned earlier, that Schubert mostly finished that third movement. It wasn't as yeah, though we had like four bars of something and then some other person came in and finished it. Schubert himself did most of it. Yeah, he did. There's, it's a scherzo that's complete in a piano score. So there's things missing, but it's easy to figure out. And then he had a melody for the first part of the trio, which was completely written out. No harmonization, but I can tell you everybody's going to come up with the same harmonization of those those bars. And then he didn't have a second strain of the a trio, which is the only thing that has to be composed by somebody else. But again, you can use the original material that he's got there to make that second strain make sense. And that's what everybody who's written a second strain has done. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll we will wrap it up there. Uh, okay. Warren Cohen, music director of the Musica Nova Orchestra, they'll be performing a program of Schubert and Bruckner, the program called Finished Unfinished. The concert is Monday evening, January 22nd at 7 p.m. at the Musical Instrument Museum. Tickets are available at musicanovaaz.org slash events. Warren, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. For KBOX Heart of the Arts podcast, I'm Greg Kustrava.